I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. that shows up in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. Wait, have you ever written a mystery? I've never written a mystery. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, The Good Lieutenant is a war novel, but it's, it's also kind of a mystery in reverse. Um, and my first novel, The Huntsman, was actually reviewed as a mystery by the great Marilyn Stasio in the New York Times. Why was it reviewed as a mystery? That's so weird. I know. The truth is I was devastated when that happened at first. Um, you know, I, I think of myself as a literary writer. I thought of that as a literary novel. and It's about race and segregation and World War II. But, you know, her review was great, and she ended up making the book a New York Times notable book that year. So it turned out okay. Um, and I realized, you know, that you can find literary novels all over the place that are inflected with and learned from mystery and crime novels in good and bad ways. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today, the omnipresent comfort narrative of mystery and crime fiction. Why do we love it so much? How does it influence the way Americans think about the world? And how do crime narratives shape the way we view Black Lives Matter and the shooting of young Black people by police? And for that, we're going to be joined by Matt Johnson, author of the novels Loving Day, Pim, Drop, and Hunting in Harlem, the nonfiction novella The Great Negro Plot, and the graphic novels Incognito and Dark Rain. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, look, it's so great to, to have you on. Um, one of the things I do with all my friends is discuss what is the new crime show we're going to watch, and this happens in America. <laughs> um, why is this particular narrative form so enduring and addicting, do you think? Well, which is that? The, cri- the yeah, crime the mystery show? mystery crime or? genre story, you know? I mean, oh, we've been see. watching European ones, my wife and I. We watched a French one called... Uh, engrenage that was really good. Uh, we search for those things. She'll only watch police procedurals. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, the mystery form is the fundamental, you know, structure of contemporary storytelling. And, the, you know, the mystery comes out of the European Enlightenment and the idea that you can look at chaos and by applying your intellect, you can come to an understanding through reason as opposed to just saying God did it, right? But it has like a direct impact on the story. You know, the first story starts with Edgar Allan Poe's Murders at the Rue Morgue, and it builds on that with Sherlock Holmes. But if you break down the mystery story where you start with a conflict and you try to solve that conflict and your initial attempt fails because the most obvious person never did it or the story is over. <laughs> so you have to go through these paces of research. And by going through this research, you build other experiences, you get other information, and then you come to a different understanding that instead of it being A, it turns out it was B. Right. And that's basically the structure for the contemporary novel, for most contemporary novels, even in the loosest sense. I mean, you have the most abstract novel. You're still compiling information as you go through the piece until the end, you know, there you reach some sort of larger understanding. So I think like that, like the way we think about story is already based on the mystery. Right. Um, you know, if you if you look before the Enlightenment, like Beowulf does not fit that, you know, way of thinking, you know, right. um, the, the Iliad does not fit that way of thinking. So it's kind of like mainlining story, you know, um, for us. And then, you know, you add on to that. We live in a society where most people follow the rules and where, you know, many of us might consider a crime at different points. But even more than considering crime, I think we consider the consequences of a crime, like what would happen if I did this. So to watch people just break societal norms in a very direct way is, you know, incredibly fulfilling, you know. <laughs> so, you know, whether it's like watching that, you know, documentary Wild Wild Country about the, you know, the ashram in Oregon or whether it's, you know, um, serial uh, podcast or any of the other true crime things, I think we're fascinated by those those moments because they in themselves are interesting, but they also end up saying so much about how we think about the world. I never really thought of all stories as mysteries, but I suppose they are, especially because, I mean, I think of um, even just, I gave a, a lecture on conflict to a bunch of undergrads and I was giving them the kind of old Frank Conroy analogy, which is, oh, your reader is a person climbing a mountain um, with a bag and they're collecting rocks of information. And if they get to the top and they're carrying rocks they don't need, um, they feel angry that they've been carrying sort of weight that they don't need. Uh, oh, and, my and in students some ways, maybe are going that's the... to love that because I use that one all the time. <laughs> it, it's really, it helps them actually. Um, that's good. Yeah. That image. And, um, and I think like maybe that's what it's like reading the news now that we're sort of, we're frantically, we're deluged with information and we don't know what we need and we're sort of trying to fit these pieces together and it's so hard. So I wonder, I mean, is it reasonable, Matt, do you think to, to think about the ways that this formula, that mystery helps us to think about the Mueller investigation, for example? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's part of the element to it, right? Like, um, definitely like, you know, having it unfold and having new pieces of information come out and the new piece and pieces are constantly adding to clarity, to a vision. I mean, like, I, I was one of those people, like, I remember, I mean, we have a short memory as a, a culture, like incredibly short, but I remember right before the election, there was a Slate article on pings from a server in um, in Trump Tower that were, that were hitting a bank in Russia. And yeah, people yeah. wondering about it. And I remember like listening to the Slate podcast and having, you know, um, people, you know, the, the hosts on the, on the show uh, talk about how that was 
just absurd and it was ridiculous, you know, but there was some connection with Russia, but it must be overblown. And then when it, people started to realize that the connection was realer, it started to have more clarity. But even when the, the first leaks of the dossier came out and kind of like surreally, you know, fit the most tin hat idea you had about the election, um, still there was like vague notions because there were so many threads and, you know, is it was Donald Trump a plant all along, you know, ever since, you know, uh, he first went to Russia, were they planning this, which seemed absurd, but then, you know, later somewhat didn't, because then you look at, you know, him going to the beauty pageant and like what connections he made. And then they're saying, well, that's absurd because he didn't, he, he was, nobody knew he was going to run for president. And then you were like, wait a minute, you forget he ran for president like every year. He just <laughs> never got that far. So it's like, I think as these things come out, we, you know, we, we had a general sense of what was going on before, but we still had kind of wild ideas. And so every time we get these bits of evidence, it adds more clarity to it, right? You get the meeting in the Seychelles, right? Which is, you know, straight out of a, of, of a like a John LeClaire novel. But you like all of a sudden have more clarity and it starts to become physical. So I think that becomes addictive. Like oh, right yeah. now, like, I mean, it's like the worst podcast ever because it just comes out like new episode <laughs> randomly will come out in six weeks. And then there'll be one week with all this information that's too much to even, you know, really <laughs> comprehend. And then you won't hear anything for another two months or not two months, really. Uh, it feels like two months, but it's probably about a week and a half. But like, so you get these these parts of it. And I think that fits into, you know, the mystery novel. But I think there's also this other sense that I think has like it, it used to drive me more. It doesn't as, as much now is this whole Trump situation is abhorrent. And so what you want for something is abhorrent is for it to be erased, you know, well, that's like not the, just rejected. But yeah, erased. that's the structure of like a noir novel where, you know, the, the whole world is corrupt. Everything is rigged. It's not going to work, you know, and and somebody like Philip Marlowe or Sam Spade or. V.I. Warshawski or whoever, you know, comes in and solves it, you know. And in a way that, that it, it, I, I love what you said about the Enlightenment earlier, right? I mean, it's an Enlightenment solution to a, a situation that's become non-Enlightenment or tribal or whatever, you know, a different. Right. Trump's not an Enlightenment politician. Uh, right. It's the opposite. Yes. Right. And we're yeah. uh, there, there's a I, I listened to a podcast recently. And I'll look this up. Hey, it's Whitney. I'm referring to a March 29th, 2018 edition of Trumpcast, where Jacob Weisberg talks to Timothy Snyder, the author of The Road to Unfreedom, Russia, Europe, America. Uh, where a, a guy had written a book who's talking about what Trump practices is the politics of eternity. I thought it was a really good term in the sense that what he isn't looking about, he's not a- advocating for progress. He wants everything to be the same, you know? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, and in that sense, it fits in, right? Like we, you know, we've had this notion in America that the the demographic uh, tide is going to turn around 2040, and then when that turns, there's going to be this kind of inevitable shift in politics because of the change in the population, right? But like, what that didn't take into consideration was that like people don't play fair, (laughs) like um, you know that change has happened, but we have a massive gerrymandering problem. We have a massive voter intimidation problem. All of it is usually coaxed in the opposite Orwellian language. Like we need integrity in our elections, is a way of actually referring to we need to have voter intimidation to 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 limit the number of people who can vote. So I, I think like this moment regardless of, of Trump um, being this kind of extreme random, 
you know, uh, a thing that happened by, you know, 80,000 votes in the right in the right territories. But this larger moment of this kind of white majority pushback, um, uh, you know, on the country, it, it makes sense within that. It's this 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 change is not going to happen easily. And, and when the facts aren't on your side. Um, people tend to resort to, you know, other measures. They start justifying things that would never justify before. What are you thinking of in terms of um, things that, that people are talking about that can't be justified or that they're justifying differently? Well, I mean, like, like 80% of what Trump does, you know, um, you can't really justify, uh, based on our American ideals that we've been taught this whole time, you can't justify the fact that, that we do not have um, really representational elections at this point, right? We have states right now that are he- heavily gerrymandered to create um, more Republican representatives in government than, than not. And that's, they completely justify it, you know, because, you know, of things that basically make up, you know, uh, like voter intimidation or voter intimidation is coaxed under the fact that there's this massive amount of voter fraud that isn't happening. Right. So they're justified in that. Just looking today at Trump's tweets, like he goes after Amazon because he wants to crush the Washington Post for negative criticism. Um, He's he's going after uh, really like anybody who gives him slight opposition this whole time. He's going after uh, elected or not elected officials going after the FBI, CAA. On the right, this would have been completely imaginable, unimaginable, but they're doing it because it justifies the current position. So I think like if you think people are going to be fighting rationally, (laughs) fighting fairly, that's not happening. What you have instead is people justifying any action that allows them to maintain power and control. So, you know, I I think it's important for uh, I think people on the left to understand that because I, th- I think there was this concept and sort of complacency that by the rules, you know, we're going to have more people voting this way and these things are going to change and that's inevitable. But that kind of misreads American history. The power, you know, the justifications that we've had in the past about what is fair and what, what is, you know, should be law was always open to interpretation. And it was specifically open to interpretation because it benefited the people in power. So now that it doesn't benefit the people in power, one by one, those rules are getting thrown out. And what it's revealing is what's been there the whole time. And I think it's not an accident. I mean, one of the, one of the great things that uh, Noir can do when it's doing good things, and we're going to talk about some of the negative aspects of, of mystery and crime narratives later in the podcast, but, you know, is that, you know, great noir movies were made in the 30s when there was an awareness of a similar kind of income disparity and that powerful people were in control of politics and weren't responding to, yeah. the, to, human, to, to, the, to the democratic proposition. You know, I mean, I don't think it's an accident. And so, so you know, the, 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 the detective is the person who restores order, restores enlightenment. Uh, but right. my concern with this, I mean, and, you know, and Mueller is the perfect guy for it. I mean, he looks like Dick Tracy, for crying out loud. You know, he looks like a private investigator, to me anyway. And, um, you know, but I think my concern is like it's – I think we're imagining that he's going to somehow fix this problem like a story would. And I don't think he's going to be able to do that. I don't think it's going to turn out that way. People are going to have to change this by you know the democratic process, by being com- coming politically active. And I worry that Mueller becomes like – I mean you know, he's the hero that we like let fix the problem. Oh, he'll fix it. We'll watch him. I don't think it's going to yeah. turn out that way. 
right? There's, we were talking before about police procedurals and there's the one-off episode where you solve one case. And then there's the grand crime narrative of the global conspiracy. And I mean, what are you, what do we expect him to do, Robert Mueller, to fix all of American history, um, to fix like the longstanding massive Republican project of decimating American public education, of making a less educated electorate, of making um, income inequality as, as wide as possible. I mean, Trump is not, he's not, He's the fruit of a, of decades of work. Yeah, and and Trump is as much as Trump is the problem. Trump is not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is he's being enabled by uh, by Republican Congress and Republican Senate, who wants to use him to get things they could never <laughs> get done before. And he's also being enabled by thirty five percent of the of the public, in part because most of them are watching a propaganda station they're getting all the news from a propaganda station and and basically it's affiliates so they're in this this kind of information bubble where facts uh what, what they consider facts are things that make them feel good so yeah i mean as far as Mueller as the detective i mean i think like um he's definitely a detective in in the traditional sense and he's going for the information it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I, I'm actually have been surprised with how effective he has been um, in, in, re, in the sense of releasing information because, like, you know, he doesn't have to actually say what his findings are. I mean, he didn't have to release that information. I think what's making him release that information in part is to protect himself and protect the investigation um, so that it can continue because if he doesn't release information, um, they're just going to pretend yeah. that none of this is real. So he's being forced into a, into a situation that he might not even want to do. And I probably, I, I would think, would not be doing it um, if you didn't have Trump and his allies out there saying this whole thing was fake and we need to shut it down. And so it'll be interesting to see in the end of it how much actual information is released, because again, that's going to be voluntary on his part, and how much has to be pulled out by the Congress and the Senate. Whatever information he comes out with, because it's the president, because of the, of the, the larger legal implications of it, the only way that we're going to be able to deal with Trump in office is through political means uh, of impeachment. And even with impeachment, you're going to have to turn the Congress, um, the Senate, you're going to have to at least make it bluer to get it any further. And even then, uh, I think you would be headed with, for, to a constitutional crisis because you're dealing with somebody who has no shame, and that's one of his superpowers, right? So even if he's impeached um, by both the House and Senate and legally has to be removed from office, there's still a question of whether they can do that, uh, besides actually having physical you know, guns on the floor pulling them out. But I think it, <laughs> you, what it is helpful – sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. I was just reminded of – do you guys remember? I mean, this is the fantasy. In part, I'm, I'm trying to work. I'm thinking about the way that the crime narrative with Mueller provides a kind of liberal fantasy, right? My fantasy, all right, is that Trump gets literally taken away in handcuffs. There, remember that meme that went around on Twitter that was like, uh, where they superimposed oh, yeah. the administration figures onto the onto onto gangsters' heads, right? And they were being sure. arrested. 
I think that's There's a bunch we, of them. Yeah. We kind of imagine that's going to happen, and I don't think it's good. It's not going to happen that way. You know, we have to kind I mean, of let go weird. of that illusion. All this is so nuts that like none of it seems. There's no outcome that is based on our existing notion of reality. There's right. just none. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that's the thing. And so like we're in a position that if it wasn't horrific would be exciting in a novel because anything that happens after this point is crazy. The exciting thing about the mystery novel is there is a sort of set movement towards, you know, order beating chaos, order that's imposed by the human mind beats chaos, pushes chaos back. And even in the nihilistic um, stories where, you know, you find out who did it, but who did it is so powerful that nothing really changes, there's still an acknowledgement there that the truth has been revealed, even if the truth is that nothing changes. So the chances are we're moving more towards that model. But, I mean, honestly, like, the vast majority of books that are bought in the world are mystery novels. The second biggest group of books that are bought are thrillers. And thrillers are just mystery novels where you know who did it. You just want to see if they get away with it. So what we have is not... Mystery. We, we have a thriller. The thriller is that in, in plain sight, based on what we already know, we have somebody who is clearly guilty of one of, of conspiring with a foreign, a foreign power that's hostile to, to this country um, to, to basically overtake the country. I mean, that's basically what we're talking about, even though it sounds like insane language. And also with the with the corruption, um, just financial corruption with the Trump hotels, with Mar-a-Lago, like with all these places, we already know the crimes. Like, that's not a question. What the question we have have now is, does he get caught? Right. So, I mean, and so in that sense, it is a thriller. (laughs) Like, and, and, you know, in the sense of a thriller, um, even if he gets caught in this case, because the way our society is set up and because there's a huge portion of our population who just doesn't care, um, it'll be interesting to see what comes out. I'm I'm now thinking of my, one of my favorite movies from when I was younger. I, I really liked The Untouchables and w- attempting to watch Elliot yeah. Ness catch Al Capone. And, and in the end, they get him, of course, on taxes. Right. Um, right. They don't get him for any of the major crimes they did. They still succeed in putting him away. Um, that. Yeah. Distinction between thriller and mystery is super useful. I think also in your comments about Fox News, I can't help but think I keep fantasizing specifically about this one scene in Superman 2. And people who know me know that I love the original Superman movies, but I don't think I've talked about them on this podcast yet. But I think about them all the time in connection to politics. There's these scenes where the supervillains from Krypton have taken over Earth and, and the United States and they go into the White House and they make everyone kneel and they're looking for the president. And there's a, a broadcast kind of going out to everyone. Everyone is seeing these supervillains on the air. And then the president sort of stands up and reveals himself, even though the rest of the rest of his staff is trying to protect him. And he breaks the he breaks the broadcast by not following the rules. And he starts sort of yelling, Superman, where are you? And Mm -hmm. I'm sort of and then um, and Superman, of course, somewhere else sees this and and sort of comes to the rescue. And I keep sort of waiting for some version of that scene to play out. Of course, it's never going to. That is Fox News. Fox no, News I is run by General Zod. <laughs> right. And it's more like Superman 3, but this time Richard Pryor never gets caught stealing, right? Everybody knows he's stealing and he gets off with it. Yeah, I mean, it's it, – it, I, I, there's in my head, there's no, like, 
there's going to be no Superman moment. It's going to be an untouchables moment. If Trump goes down, it amazingly probably won't be for his largest crimes. It'll be for something dumb like the Stormy Daniels uh, incident or something, you know, associated along those lines. And the reason is, is because those types of crimes are not open for interpretation as much as the as questions about collusion and how they influence things, right? The crime of, of uh, you know, of, of giving somebody $130,000 or whatever amount she got to shut up, um, you know, a week before the election is very easy to prosecute because it's cut and dry, right? So there's no like sort of partisan interpretation that can really free you from that. So I imagine that's going to happen. I mean, honestly, this is how I'm thinking things go down. I think what goes down is we find out all these horrific things um, that are going to be connected to, to, to collusion with the Kremlin, you know, and I think it's important to say the Kremlin as opposed to Russia because, you know, there's lots of wonderful Russians who have to deal with a horrible government just like we have to deal with a horrible government, specifically the Kremlin and Putin. We're going to find out about that information. There's going to be probably Congress is going to switch. He's going to get impeachment, but he won't leave office. What might happen is after he does leave office after four years, there's so many crimes around, you know, um, be- between Jared Kushner, uh, his dealings and, and, you know, Don Jr. and all the things that are there that we're probably going to see prosecutions go on after um, the, uh, the 2020 election. And if he ever actually ends up serving time, I could actually, I mean, I really could see it. I mean, at, at this point, it's going to be difficult to avoid if he's not in power. You know, particularly if you get a, if you get a Democratic House and Senate and a Democratic president, um, I think they're not going to, in the past, they've let it go. They want to move on. But I think this has reached the level of, you know, we can't move on as a society unless we address these basic rules. And I think there's going to be prosecutions after that point. Well, that's why the Watergate narrative is so important in the American imagination, because it was a place where uh, somebody attempted to move away from rule of law and rule of law eventually stopped it, you know. But there wasn't a guarantee that that would work out that way. There were many, many moments well, in that story where it could have gone differently. And I, that's what's scary yeah, about Nixon this one. We don't know that it's right. going to have a happy ending. You know. Yeah, Nixon had shame. Nixon wasn't, wasn't impeached. He left the office because it looked like he was going to get impeached. Trump would be happy to be impeached by both the House and Senate and stay in office to wait out his time. And if he does that, by the time that goes through, so imagine there's an election switch. Maybe he's impeached this time next year. It's 2019, right? If it's 2019 and he, he's been impeached by the House and Senate and won't leave, do you send in the, the National Guard to remove him? Or do you just wait till 2020 and vote him out? And chances are you wait till 2020 and vote him out because the, the impact on the culture will probably be too dramatic to actually remove him the way you know, people imagine. So, I mean, I, yeah, I, I imagine like I just cannot see any point where he acknowledges what he's done. Um, so I think that's kind of where we're headed. I want to just point out, and then we should probably move on to our the next topic, and maybe this will lead us there, is that as we're talking about how dominant the narrative of crime fiction and mystery fiction is in the way that we think about what's happening politically today, Trump himself is a kind, I think, thinks of himself as a form of the, there's a form of detective that is the law-breaking detective, the, the detective yeah. who will come and break the law so that we don't have to. 
And right. um, there's and those are usually the ones that are more troubling as detective characters. Somebody like Mike Hammer, somebody who's somewhat of a sadist, somebody who maybe is a racist, somebody who will, you know, or Dirty Harry, for instance, right? right. Um, uh, and, and and Trump sees himself in that mold also. I just want to say that the right ha- yeah. is using this this form of thinking as well, just a slightly different yeah. one than the left does. Definitely, a hundred percent. I mean, that's that's his cover. His cover is that you know he's like you know I can't remember the main character from the Shield. Like he's corrupt, but he's corrupt trying to fight for you. He'll do anything for you, even if it breaks the law, right? Right. So I mean, and I think that's his cover. Now, of course, he's also incredibly corrupt financially and in other ways that doesn't serve anyone else but himself. There was an article uh, today in. Uh, the New York magazine from Jonathan Shay talking about the fact that he's actually vulnerable uh, on the idea of corruption uh, financially, that he's just serving himself because that goes counter narrative to the idea that he's a wealthy guy who put it all aside to fight for you. Um, no, he's actually fighting for himself and we can show the actual financial reports that prove that that uh, Trump organization is actually the beneficiary of all his work as opposed to, you know, everyday working people. Of course, like the idea that everyday working people are the ones that voted him in is part of the, the myth of Trump. The majority of, of whites who voted for him were middle class and upper. And I think, you know, earlier you mentioned Stormy Daniels. And I mean, I keep thinking of her as Breathless Mahoney from Dick Tracy, but maybe she's actually the person who would put it all aside to fight for us. I mean, she's also obviously fighting for herself, but she sort of fits into this dame with a heart of gold narrative in some sense. And there's this whole cast of characters around Trump who fit into these certain types. And I mean, I think my right now, my sort of um, fantasy narrative allegiance is is vacillating between her and James James Comey and and Mueller. You know, could one of them save us? And I, I think I I gotta let it go. But she she's certainly captivating in that way. Yeah. What what? How would you in the fantasy? How would she save everybody? I mean, I think just by sort of. I, I guess I imagine some sort of trial where she's giving dramatic testimony about the wrongs that she was done. And then there's the judiciary system actually works. And, um, you know, you, what you said about Trump going to jail in 2023, I mean, that sounds like such a lovely dream. Um, right. You know, I think the way as yeah. as a mystery reader of the Trump administration, I think some of the pieces that I'm trying to put together are how does Stormy Daniels fit into the Mueller investigation? How does that connect right. to Russia if it does? I mean, how can those different dots be be aligned and yeah and and i just i i i long to see it i'm trying working really hard to put that plot together and i think yeah. i'm not, I'm not it, sure it's there it, it's fascinating like you know again like his superpower is shame right and then you're dealing with somebody who works in the adult industry who's had to deal with shame you know directly for most of her career right so like it's it, it, she's in many ways the perfect um, nemesis for him, you know, to to see them kind of uh, them trying to crush her and put her down, and how kind of gracefully and you know it, it seems like with ease she pushes back on it. I mean, I I like most likely all these things will end with these side characters that he has. Like you know, they remind me of like Dick Tracy's you know band of villains, you know. Um, they're, they're all kind of grotesque in their own ways. Um, they are all screwed. 
<laughs> you know, like everyone around him is, is, is going to have legal jeopardy for years. Um, my, my, you know, my fantasy along that line is that these kind of, you know, these minor subplots that happen, that one of them is, you know, is the Al Capone tax moment, the one that crushes through. I mean, the flip side to our fantasizing about detective, you know, the one man who can save it all, the, the lone gumshoe striking through, is that I think American fantasies about the ways that cops are in their communities have really affected also not only our reading of things like the Mueller investigation, but also the way that people are reading coverage of police shootings of black Americans. And I follow you on Twitter and have especially been appreciating your tweets in response to that news. And I wonder if we can talk a little bit about how American imagination around cops plays into not only the Mueller investigation, but also American fantasies of the police always being in the right. Because when Witt and I were talking about this episode and thinking about the way that the crime genre and especially noir affect how we read this kind of news, it was impossible not to think of Incognito, which is, of course, a graphic mystery and says that on a cover. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll say this first, like my uncle's a cop. Um, my family, uh, my father's side of the family is a military family. Uh, many of them served in, in the 82nd Airborne, started with my grandfather who jumped out of a plane in North Africa when they first started. So, like, I, I come from one of those families. And uh, my family's just assholes like everybody else. I mean, like, it's just people with problems, you know, just like everybody else. But we live in a society that primary goal is the maintenance of order uh, above all things. And, um, you know, we deal with the repercussions of that, but that is our primary goal. So if there's a protest um, that fights uh, against, you know, uh, black people, um, mostly men, but also women um, being disproportionately killed uh, by, by police using gun violence, um, that agitates uh, the status quo, right? And um, that is a challenge uh, to the norm. And so in, in reaction to it, there's, you know, the combinations and, and uh, you know, this, dis- this larger discomfort even by the mainstream press. Um, I, you know, I, I'm from Philly. When the Eagles won the Super Bowl, um, we had, you know, people in the streets, um, largely white, but, but just people in the streets ripping down poles and flipping cars and all that, um, doing the same kind of physical violence that you often used as the primary criticism of social protest. And there was no uh, larger kind of rebuttal to that. There was n- nobody had a problem with it because it doesn't challenge the social norms, right? It doesn't challenge those norms. And I think along with the police officers, there's a fetishization of the police and, the, and military families um, because they uphold the social norms. And because they uphold the social norms, you know, they are given leeway that no one else in society would have as far as criticism goes, right? So, like, we can just start with, like, that point with dealing with the police. But if you create a situation um, that's also backed up by the law that says that people are above criticism, you know, and really above reprimand, and you say police officers are allowed to kill people if they feel threatened— um, and that they're allowed to shoot first and ask questions later, you know, because they are of this special class of people, then you end up with the disaster that we have right now. Now, there's a lot of noirs where 
the police are corrupt, you know, and there's a lot of noirs where the police are incompetent. You know, mystery novels tend to have police who are incompetent because it justifies the fact that, you know, like a housewife from, you know, the suburban Virginia is solving crimes. Right. Why is she solving crimes? Because, you know, the police are incompetent. What we don't have um, it, it, as a tradition is um, mystery novels where the corruption is not just localized, but endemic in the system, you know? Um, there's, there might be a bad cop, there might be a bad precinct, but there's not a challenge oftentimes. I mean, there's individual books that do that, but it's, it's not part of the, the mainstream canon that the structure of our police force is, is just custom made for abuses. And it's also important to think about, I mean, that's, uh, you know, how, how many police procedural narratives exist and how they're on television all the time, you know? At, at whatever CSI is on all the time. I don't even you know that show was on for years. Law and Order, all all these shows that have been on for decades now, right? Enforcing yeah. sort of the same basic precepts of how to think about law enforcement, and they right. all you know it, it's always using like the bad apple approach toward police corruption, right? And never really addressing this other issue. I just think people yeah. forget how much our narrative uh, is affected by that. How it's like a form of constant permanent pro-law enforcement propaganda that comes yeah, out of like our, it, out of Hollywood and out of our books, you know? Totally. And like law and order would be more accurate if 20% of the episodes um, nailed somebody and basically set them up for a crime they didn't commit. I mean, right. that would make much more sense. You know, I mean, just the effectiveness, even if it was 15% of the episodes, like that would be a lot more effective. You know, to show that these crimes happen, they, they have somebody, the person didn't do it, and they end up going to jail. And, like, they're conscious that they don't have a strong enough case, but they think, oh, well, they probably did something, and they go to jail. Like, that would be more effective. Or, or, you, it's, it, or where you have police who just don't believe things that are true. I mean, today I just was listening on the radio. The sheriff in Sacramento was saying, like, after the protester had been hit by, by one of the uh, sheriff's department cars— uh, saying like these were paid protesters, there's no right. evidence for that. Like the 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 mindset that that person would have to say that these protesters in Sacramento were paid is a kind of thing that is a kind of propaganda issue similar to what we were talking about earlier with Fox News that I don't find um, police narratives uh, addressing very yeah. often right now. Right. Yeah. And and I, that's not similar to Fox News. That is Fox News. Right. I mean, that's. That's where it's created. They create a narrative that allows people to write off all these things as not being real. And, you know, all the facts that they don't want to deal with, they either give just cursory glance to them or they create counter narratives. Those counter narratives go on TV. They get echoed on radio shows. And these people, you know, there's many people and many of them are police officers who that's the only news they get. And they're also trained to believe that all other news is actually propaganda. But what they have is the actual truth, right? So, you know, a direct result of that is that kind of belief, right? Um, I mean, we didn't have, we had similar problems before we had cable news, you know? So, like, it's not just Fox, it's a tendency for people to want to believe the worst about people they don't agree with, and also to constantly paint themselves as the good guys. I mean, that's just an inherent act. But right now, you spoke about Incognito, which is, you know, is about lynching um, you know, in the, in the 1920s, 
when I wrote that book, part of the inspiration for that book was that my great-grandfather escaped a lynching in South Carolina and moved to Chicago, changed his name to Jones so nobody would find him. It was the most common name in the phone book. And for years, he sat in a chair staring at the door of his apartment with a shotgun waiting for them to come to him. And actually, like just like yesterday, I had a huge breakthrough in the research. A cousin of mine figured out um, what the crime was, what was going on, what he ran from. And now I'm looking at all these articles from this, this story where there was a shooting and my, it was a fight over a mule. And uh, my uh, ancestor, my great-grandfather, was accused of, uh, of shooting the uh, landowner who came to take the, the mule from the sharecropping uh, farm. And they were going to lynch him. So, you know, I don't know the story because when I look back, all the articles are filtered through the white imagination, and I don't know what's true and what isn't. I don't know what people are making up and isn't. I don't trust the legal system and how it looks at, at blacks in, in 1905 in South Carolina. So I have to decipher even what's going on. They're openly talking about lynching him. If there's a trial, if they catch him and there's a trial, if there's a not guilty verdict, they're going to lynch him. And so, like, when I'm listening to these stories and hearing them, you know, the moment clicked where I'm like, if they had caught him, I would not be here, right? I would not be here. My mother would not be here. My cousins, my kids, none of us would exist, right? And then to build on that, you know, when you look at almost, uh, it's, I think it's close to uh, 4,500 lynchings between Reconstruction up until World War II, uh, 5,000 people. Think of all the people that should be here on this earth that aren't because of these acts, right? I mean, so these acts don't just have an immediate impact on a community. They have an incalculable impact going forward on a community. And so, like, these, these narratives that we have to reinforce it justify not just kind of a murder, but also these, these like, inherently political acts that can, if you look over centuries, can have this incredible impact on, on communities. So, you know, part of what I do is, is try to change the narrative. That's so you, an amazing story. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing it with us. Um, and I think, you know, we asked you to be on the show and then I was revisiting Incognito and was looking on the website and was realizing that it's the 10th and the 10th anniversary edition is out. And I think of fiction, I mean, you're describing it in some ways, and I think of it this way, too, as, as a form of time travel. And we're talking about noir here, but the idea of um, noir as using noir as a form of time travel, both in style and then also in Incognito, uh, Zane Pinchback goes undercover to investigate lynchings, and he ends up checking out a charge against his brother. And now for this 10th anniversary edition, you added some new content. You also wrote two new mini prequels, both also starring Zane Pinchback. And I'm wondering what it was like for you to revisit that world um, in the current political conversation to work on that new edition of the of the first book and to write new stories for Zane, especially in light of the conversations that we're having about, I mean, police bias now and what you're saying about in that long, long wake yeah. of killings, the long, long wake of a murder, um, one yeah. murder, and then the thousands that you refer to. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, we, we reissued the original with like enhanced art and other stuff. And we have a new series, like I think uh, issue three might be on the stands right now. We're going to do five issues and then um, and then also be another graphic novel, a prequel set in the Harlem Renaissance. 
um, the thing about going into the past is uh, it's it, like trying not to be depressed. Because the, the trick is, you know, part of the way that the system maintains itself is by constantly saying it's better than it was, it's better than it was, it's better than it was, right? So it gives you this right. feeling that history is inevitable and it moves forward. And basically, if you just sit in your canoe, you'll flow with the current, right? So, um, but when you go back, you find something a lot more complicated. And, um, you know, in some ways, things definitely have improved. Um, but some of the core underlying issues of, you know, black people in America in, in terms of, of, you know, the police, in terms of justice uh, in the courts um, have, has really not changed at all. There's been, um, you know, many cases, modern cases that match up almost identically with um, cases going back to, you know, the, the Civil War. So it, it, that's the part that's hard to not get frustrated on. Um, you know, the, when I'm looking at this case, that they brought against uh, my great grandfather, I can see all the patterns of a contemporary case uh, against a black man in our society who does not have power, is not particularly wealthy. They're, those are all there. Um, you know, the the uh, filings of police that are incredibly suspect that don't even make sense. Um, you look back, um, they're there. The the kind of railroading uh, is there. The assumption of evil basically, um, on the part of the African-American subjects, which kind of enables them to say, well, even if he didn't do this, he probably did something, right? Those are all there. And, and, and on the other side, there still is a judicial system that says, okay, we have checks and balances as, as well, which is both, you know, like kind of revelatory for me to see that even then, you know, my, my the case that I'm looking at went to the Supreme Court um, because, basically a, a black neighbor showed up to see what was going on. And because they couldn't find um, whoever did do the shooting, they arrested the neighbor with no evidence, even though they had an alibi of being three miles away um, at home, they didn't care. And he ended up undergoing three trials until he was eventually freed four years later. So there's like all these things that are similar. So on one hand, like when I look at the past, I kind of, and really when you're writing in the past, you're kind of reliving the past. Um, I, I think you have to keep your eyes open as to how, you know, that some things have gotten better, but how many things have not gotten better at all. And then on the other side of it, um, you know, I think you also have to look at those times as a way of understanding the present. Sometimes it's hard to look at the present just because we don't have all the information involved in different cases. Um, right. But when you look at the past and you see these false convictions and these false testimonies and, you know, all these things that, that we see now over five years, you can go look and see the entire pattern play out. And, and so, like, it, and the other thing, too, I think it's easier if you feel challenged by looking at racial injustice in the country. If you're white and you feel challenged directly when people talk about the oppression of African-Americans, because you think in some ways it implicates you, you think in some ways that it delegitimizes your own struggle, you know, um, like the white privilege discussion, you know, it like it is threatening because it says to somebody, yeah, yeah, you've worked hard and all that, but you had it easy compared to these people. That's threatening to people's self-image. But if you look to the past, I think, it's a first step to acknowledging those underlying issues, that these things happen. The second step is acknowledging that these things haven't changed as much as you like to believe. Well, all of the things and that so you're Zane talking about are present in the Stephen Clark uh, shooting, you know, a presumption of evil, like you said, like, oh, he's definitely got a gun in his hand, not a cell phone, you know. 
Yeah. All, all that stuff no, is I, happening in that case, you know. I promise you, your grandchildren will look back and will not believe how racist a society it was today. And, the, and some of the stuff will still be happening, but it'll be easy for them to diagnose it in the past than it is in the present. And one of the most interesting things about Zane Pinchback, and I don't think I said this earlier, Zane Pinchback incognito comes from this notion of passing, and he's a very light-skinned black man who uses that identity to move in and out of white spaces to reveal them to be plotting against black people in various ways. And the idea of him as a racial detective is so compelling to me. So I just want to give our listeners a taste for how this book is. And Matt is out of town, so I'm actually going to going to read from it. And these are some scenes with terrific terrific art, so I really encourage everyone to pick up a copy. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, the famous incognito himself, death-defying undercover octoroon of the modern age. My buddy Zane, the high yeller super negro, able to pass for a Nordic in the blink of an eye. But I'm not famous. That's sort of the point. Of course you're famous, says his female companion. Everyone leave, reads your investigations into the lynching problem. All of Harlem knows incognito. Exactly. Everyone knows who incognito is, Zane says. But Zane Pinchback is a nobody. It is the age of the black writer, and Zane Pinchback has done nothing, it appears. That's absurd. You are published in every black paper and pamphlet in the North. If it wasn't for your investigative work, many of these lynchings would never be revealed. Zane says, but I want to be revealed too. There is a movement happening right here in Harlem, a renaissance. I'm a writer. How could I not want to be a part of that? George Schuyler, the columnist from The Messenger, even he's got a novel coming out. Answer simple. Keep up the investigative stuff you're known for, his friend advises, but publish under your own name and picture. We could have a big coming out party at Small's Paradise. Ladies free before 10. Cash bar, of course. Carl, that is a thoroughly bad idea. Well, you could do an open bar if the Herald will pay for it. Zane says, if I publish under my name and picture, I can never do undercover again. The price of fame, Chappie. The price of fame. <laughs> so Zane goes on to meet with his editor and intends to quit. And there is a character in here who reminds me very much of kind of Jonah Jameson or Perry White. And there's a great four panel page that sort of shows him making the decision to stick around. And if this is another attempt to keep me, Zane says, look at the name, his editor says, look at the dates. I'm not trying to shit you, Zane. It just came in last night. Pause. God damn it. God damn it. And then his editor sort of challenges him to to stay around and make things right. And he says, all right, fine. I'm on this last story, but this changes nothing. When I come back, I better have an office and it better say managing editor on the door. Make it back and make it back safe. And I'll give you that and a column with your picture on the front, but not a raise. Uh, so here, kind of using all of the tropes of, of the the journalist as with with other investigations going on, some of which their editor knows about and some of which they don't. Fantasies of another more productive life exploring their creativity. And... Uh, at the same time, this really righteous cause, which, Matt, as you were saying earlier, kind of exceeds the standard detective narrative in that it, he's looking at an individual injustice, but also one that indicts the broader system. And it's so interesting to watch 
these tropes played with in this way. The idea of Zane Pinchback, um, and also like what a great name, right? Um, Zane Pinchback is someone with his superpower being maybe his ability to pass and also his his journalistic skills, his ability to to see the system for what it is. Yeah. First of all, it sounds a lot better when you read it than when I do. Um, (laughs) Thank you for that. Um, Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think it's funny because the, you know, the journalism question is a huge one now too. Right. And, and um, the Washington Post is doing great work um, and, and uh, New York times occasionally does good work um, less so, but uh, I, I think we do also have this fantasy that's based on, you know, the pillars of, of society that, that, you know, that the journalism will serve as a, you know, a, um, a, a corrective for, for the larger bureaucracies and larger society. Um, I think it, that, that also can be another version of the, of the Robert Mueller, you know, savior complex, you know, um, that journalism will save us. But, um, but I, I, when I originally wrote it, it was inspired by the black press of, of the you know the early 20th century and also late uh, 19th century, and um, specifically with Walter White, who was an African American who looked white. Uh, Walter White existed before Breaking Bad, and and he was one of the former heads of the NAACP, and um, I wanted to kind of let that you know just. Uh, be an in not just to the story, but also as a tribute to those black presses, because at the time lynchings would happen, and you know sometimes they weren't even covered, um, and and when they were covered, it would be vague uh, responses that you know the community took the matter into their own hands, and so Walter White and and other black uh, uh, press uh, representatives would find information about lynching, and publish those in places like the Chicago Defender. Um, the Amsterdam News, places in the north, they were they just the stories were just not being told. So um, it was really kind of exciting. I mean, I worked briefly for the Amsterdam News um, just as a freelance writer when I was in school and, and uh, at graduate school. And it was, it, it, for me, it was a way to kind of pay homage to that. That there's always been journalists out there, you know, who are trying to fight the you know the prevalent narrative with with facts. I want to just give a shout out to Kansas City's uh, longstanding uh, African-American newspaper, The Call, which was an incredibly important force, particularly in the 60s uh, during the civil rights movement. And we had riots here in 1968, which we recently have been talking about a lot. Um, and The Call is the, was the paper that wrote all of those important stories, the stories that the star wouldn't write at the time. Um, right. So, yes, I, I, I love that part of, of your narrative. That was really important. Yeah, and Kansas City is an excellent example. Um, you know, here's a place that has a history, a, a really kind of troubled racial history um, of, of riots and massacres going back, you know, uh, back through the century. No doubt. And and then, you know, to, to have somebody um, be able to actually, you know, say it from their own perspective, uh, as opposed to kind of filtered through like a mainstream white perspective was priceless. 
And, you know, I think the black press doesn't exist sort of in the same way, but the comparison today would be, you know, um, alternative presses um, who and smaller magazines and even some of the bigger ones that are allowed to do deep dives into uh, information that, you know, the, ma- the main ways we get media through TV just simply can't or sometimes isn't interested in doing. So um, that's one of the reasons that, like, Trump's attack on, on Amazon and The Washington Post is, um, is an anathema to what America is supposed to stand for. And that these presses are, are, you know, they're not part of the government, but that's the point. They're outside of the government, and they're supposed to be telling us what's really going on. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really great having you on. Listeners, check out the new edition of Incognito and its brand new prequels just out. And we will link to those on our Facebook and Twitter pages and also send you to Matt's website where you can read more about his work. Matt, thanks so much. Thank you. It was fun to talk to you. Thanks a lot, Matt. And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. If you're interested in crime narratives like we are, we have a great recommendation for you. Our parent site, LitHub, has launched an awesome new webpage. It's called Crime Reads, and you can find it at crimereads.com. Right there, along with a mountain of terrific crime and mystery fiction content, they have a guide to the essential crime TV of April 2018. Please go and visit. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction backslash non backslash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the News tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on our Lithub show page, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Twitter at FNF Talk. Happy reading.